There's one line of reasoning in the world that says, if you are sincere, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Just be sincere. There's another line of reasoning out there in the world that says, hey, look, all roads lead to God. It's like God's on top of the mountain and just whatever road you want to get, wherever you are on the mountain, whatever road will take you to God. Pick one and take off into a relationship with God. And yet we open God's book, the Word of God, and it does not say either of those things. In fact, the Bible explains when you open it and read its message that when it comes to knowing God, there are several forks in the road all along the way. The first fork is, is there a God or is there not a God? You open the word of God and it asserts that in fact God exists and we are accountable to him. That's the first fork. Then... Even those who say, well, yeah, there is a God. And by the way, if we say there is not a God, that creates all kind of problems in understanding life and the nature of life and the purpose of life and the meaning of life or the lack of meaning of life. But then even those of us who come to the fork of the road and say, oh, yes, there's a God and he can be known that that's really a fork in the road. Because some say, well, yeah, there is a God, but I don't think he can be known. We can't know him. And even there's a fork in that road. Uh, are, are you a hard agnostic or a soft agnostic? Do you believe that God uh, exists but cannot be known? Uh, do you believe that? Because you don't know God or because, fork in the road, no one can know God. But you open the Bible and it says that God can be known. And even though different ideas are sincerely believed about this matter of knowing God, you can believe something sincerely about God and whether or not he can be known and be absolutely wrong. Paul goes out of his way, and you may say goes to tortured ends as he comes to, we're coming to a major pivot in the book. You may say, wow, I can't believe he said that. He goes to great lengths to make sure that the message about knowing God is crystal clear. He works very hard at shaping for the Galatians and for us a clear understanding about the nature of the good news about Jesus and how God can be known. What is true is that there will be people in hell for all of eternity who are there because they believed lies in the illustration sense, took the wrong fork in the road, though they sincerely believed them. And because this is a matter then for life and eternity, of all things, we must be clear on this matter of how do we know God? Paul is working on clarity. Come with me to Galatians 
5. I'm going to read Galatians 5, 1 through 12. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, but I'm focusing on verses 7 through 12. These six verses will be the focus of the message this morning. He's wrapping up his argument against those who wanted to use Moses, a little bit of the law, in order to get home to knowing God. Jesus, yes, let's add a little bit of the law, Jesus, and something that we can do to just cement the deal and get home. And Paul is saying, no, that, that's not gospel clarity. Let me clarify it for you. And eternity is at stake. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves here the word of the Lord. Now this morning I would like to go two different directions. First, I want to show you how Paul is contrasting himself with the false teachers. Now one of the reasons why he draws a distinction between himself and them is because in order to support their argument, verse 11, they're drawing Paul in and saying, look, even Paul preached circumcision and Paul is saying, how can you make that assertion? And he's pushing back with these verses. But secondly, you say, Eric, I have to go to work tomorrow. Eric, I, I, I'm coming up on exams at school, and you're up there droning on about circumcision and the law. How is this passage helpful? How will it help my life? Let me identify three things before we leave. But first, let's draft our teacher do we want the false or do we want the true? Not all teachers are alike. In life, we decide what voices we are going to listen to and how we are going to respond to those voices. Whom will we attach ourselves to? What podcasts will we listen? Where are the fountains of truth that we drink deeply from? Where do we get our information about reality that shapes our world view? Do we want the false teachers or the true? That's what Paul's asking here, and he's going to contrast himself. Remember, 
uh, when our kids were growing up, we had a local elementary school, of all things, Possum Elementary. And uh, the Friday before the next week when school would start, they would post at, on that day the, uh, who was in what classes, and they would post uh, who the teachers were and who the members of the class were. And invariably, we'd get in the car, and of course, along the way, because we had three children in the school, we had developed convictions about uh, the teachers we wanted our kids to have. Not all teachers are created equal. I know every teacher here is just the best that there is. I do want to say that, of course. Well, and we, we laugh about it now. We weren't laughing then. But each year we would drive over there, and our daughter, our youngest, would go up to the windows and look to see whose classes she was in. And invariably, the draft teacher taught her badly. Now, she was a real good student, and she was no trouble for the teachers. So often, she was put with the criminals just to kind of balance out what was going on. And then she would get uh, with the uh, harsh enforcer who'd get the day started off well putting the uh, criminals under her finger. So invariably, it was a tough class with the teacher that may, maybe would be second choice instead of first. And there were only two choices. And uh, so invariably, she would turn around, she would look at the page, start crying, turn around, get in the car, and we would drive home consoling her on the way home. And it didn't just happen once. It was like every year of elementary school. And uh, while it was uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, now we can laugh about it all these years later. Uh, It's funny now. But dissimilar to uh, Possum Elementary, where... You are assigned a teacher. In life, you and I attach ourselves to voices that influence us. We decide who we're going to let in to shape our minds and shape our perspective. And Paul is saying this, saying three things. First, the Apostle Paul compares himself with the false teachers. Look at verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. And watch what he says about his heart for them and what he says about the result of these teachers, he calls the false teacher, verse 10, the one who is troubling you. You were running well. Who hindered you? Who troubled you from obeying the truth? When I was there and passed out this saving message about Jesus, you heard it and God opened your heart and you believed and got off to such a great start. You were running well. The false teachers came in behind And you've now been, here's his word, hindered. They're troubling you. Here Paul uses his central metaphor for the Christian life, this idea of running a race. And it's a marathon, is it not? It is not a sprint in which just a few seconds and it's over. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And what a great challenge and adventure to live for our Lord. But he's saying, you guys started off really well in the race. He uses this metaphor, and the older I get, the more I appreciate it when he says, you know, I've, I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And it just behooves all of us to just stop this morning and ask, how's the fight going? I love John White's book on the Christian life. He just entitles it, The Fight. He understood the nature with Bunyan of holy war and living for Christ in the day in which we live. How's the fight going? How about the keeping of faith? We've stumbled upon a time where it it, it is no longer novel to have people just walking away from the faith. I mean, high-profile people with uh, whatever a great platform is just 
walking away and then using their platform to publish these uh, iconic walk away misses. What's that? It's, long, it's far away from Paul. I've kept the faith. I finished the race. How's it going? You going to finish the race? I remember in cross country, our coach, who probably could have individually run the races better than we could at our highest form, he'd run along and he would encourage us. Uh, that's Paul. That's what a good teacher does. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But these people started on a race and they began to putter out. Are, are you puttering out? Are you pulling up? I, I ran in a 5K all back in the fall and uh, I texted a friend from college who was a national class steeplechaser, really great runner. And I said, hey, I'm in a 5K today. And, and he texted me back, here's, here's my advice. Start really easy and then back off throughout the race. That was his advice. Uh, how many have you found start with Jesus, run well, and it looks like they got a text message to back off, slow down, drop out, pull over, no big deal. Paul was saying, verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The false teachers had taught a gospel that was foreign to the New Testament. And when they did, it hindered the people. It hindered them. Are you being hindered by something you are believing or some, something that you've picked up? It used to be an English phrase used a lot. I don't hear it anymore at all. Somebody would reinforce the veracity, the truthfulness of something. They would say, now that's the gospel truth. And they would pull that up alongside, and it spoke of a noble reputation that the gospel had about telling us what was true. The gospel truth promotes life, vitality, and freedom. That's why it matters. These false ideas persuade us, verse 8, to leave the truth. Are we under the sway of any false ideas this morning? Now notice verse 9. It doesn't take much in the false idea area to really gum it up. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. You say, Eric, I, I only took on board this, this little piece of a false idea. Uh, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He uses this proverb. We'll come back to that in just a moment. That's why it's even more vi vital to monitor the voices that are in our lives. The voices that are in our ear. What are we absorbing? A little bit can mess up at all. Paul's message is different and distinct. It's the gospel truth. They're leaving it. They're being hurt by it. And they're leaving freedom to go to bondage. The outcome of believing a different idea is a different outcome. It's not the same outcome. The apostle Paul compares himself with the false teachers. Now, secondly, Paul expresses his confidence in the Galatian believers. I love this. Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. You see, taking other views is going to take them where they don't want to go. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul encourages them with the idea that the authentic, they're going to make it. Hang with the gospel truth. Go forward. Tyler Bass went to Georgia Southern which in terms of college football program, is a, it's a fine 
Division I college football program, but it's not an upper-tier elite school. I mean, it's Georgia Southern. He was drafted by the Bills. He's their kicker. Who knew a guy from a small D1 program could go to the pros? Well, they teed up a field goal for him to kick this year in an important game when the points really mattered. And the Buffalo Bills had a good run this fall. And uh, he missed the field goal. Now, to not perform at that level brings you to the end of your career. Um, they'll put you on waivers. They'll put you on injured reserve. You're, you're just out. I mean, you, you either perform or they get somebody else. But his coach chose to do something very important. He missed the field goal. What was the coach's response? He went to his office, got a piece of paper off his desk, and he wrote him a note. And he told him he loved him. And he told him he believed in him. And he told him that the team was going to need him in the future. And he wanted him to look forward and that he had confidence in him. He put it in an envelope, went over and stuck it in his locker. The guy comes in, Tyler opens his locker, sees that note. It just galvanized his resolve and he finished the year and had a pretty good year. But it was all about somebody believing in him, cheering for him directing him in the right way. That's what Paul's doing here. One telltale sign of a great preacher and teacher is always encouraging others forward. That's Paul here for the Galatians. Does he get on them? Yes. Does he press them? Yes. But he tells them, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. Dispatch with those ideas that you've brought on board that are corrupting the whole lump. Always encouraging. Now, thirdly, Paul has no patience for teachers who are disturbing the church. Now, as he, distress, as he addresses what is disturbing the church, you may find these words a little disturbing. It's verse 12. It's like, what in the world is this? Now, verse 11, before we get there, one of the um, ways that the false teacher tried to sell his wares to the congregation was say, hey, Paul teaches this, and what's good for Paul is good for me. Paul teaches what? Paul teaches, add to Jesus a little bit of law and circumcision. Paul's teaching that, and Paul says, now wait a minute. Why am I writing this? Why do those in that camp persecute me if I am teaching what that camp believes? That doesn't make any logical sense. He says... But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, as you are accusing me of preaching, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. We'll come back to that as we close uh, this morning. Paul had no patience for teachers who were disturbing the church. And so we come to verse 12, a disturbing verse for some readers of the epistle. Now the issue is circumcision. So what does Paul say? I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Hey, why stop with cutting off the foreskin? Just get the whole job done. He essentially tells them, why don't you just cut your genitals off if you like this stuff so well? And it's like, what in the world? 
Has Paul gone off the edge? I had a buddy I went to college with, and you'd, you'd have to be a pastor fighting in the trenches to understand this, and I'm not condoning this at all. This was, he sinned. There was a man in the community who was a majority age having sexual contact with a minor in the church. He found out about it. They addressed it. It didn't stop. It continued. It was a mess to address, and so they had to face it again. <laughs> it was some rural place in Michigan, and when he went to face it again, in the middle of trying to take up the honor of this young lady and face this matter, he just lost all decorum <laughs> and punched the guy in the, in the midst of facing it. Well, some who read verse 12 say, man, that's just like Eric's friend. Just totally lost it in the middle of facing something. What is he saying? Paul says that the clarity of the message is so important that even strident language to bring them to understand is not out of place. Now, verse 12 sits in a context in the first century in a region called Galatia. Now, there was a cult, a religious group in Galatia at the time. You get their name right. The cult of Sibeli. And their priests in the cult of Sibeli were actually thought to be very devout because they would use instruments to castrate themselves and this was a part of getting in the guild of the priesthood. And for that reason, some revered them, were interested in this religious cult, because it had to be something good, didn't it? It wasn't. It had to be something good, because look at the devotion of these priests. So this is in this region. They're aware of that. And that's what's a part of what's behind verse 12 in this strong language by Paul when he says, look, you interested in circumcision? Just go all the way. Take care of all the business. You like that? But in an arresting way, this would have stood up on its heels and confronted what was going on in Galatia. And by the way, that language is inappropriate unless being clear on the gospel is a matter of life and death and eternity. And to get the gospel wrong, the good news about Jesus wrong is to spend forever thinking about it in hell. And so Paul lays it all out there, uses the moment in that culture and runs after grace and invites all of them to Graceland. Now, how does this passage help us with life? What possible contribution do these five verses make to our life with Christ? Number one, in our relationship with Christ, we run well when we obey, verse 7. How do we tell as followers of Jesus how it's going in our relationship with Christ? Paul was very clear. We do not run well when we do not obey. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? How do we tell when our relationship with Christ is real, vital, authentic, and alive? It's actually more simple than we would imagine. We obey what Christ has asked us to do. Paul was clear. 
the central determining metric was not going to church, not reading your Bible. I'm for going to church and reading your Bible. It was not a well-groomed profession of faith. How good's your testimony? You know, lay it on me. Oh, man, that, that's really great rhetoric. Sounds wonderful. The telling metric for Paul was do you obey Jesus or not? It's amazing what is tolerated as disobedience, or what is tolerated in disobedience today and say, well, they're, they're, they're fine, they're just, that's, that's who they are. Paul said they are not Christ's unless they are being faithful to him through obedience. They live like it. Now let's level with God this morning and let me ask you just a very simple question. Are there any areas in our lives this morning where we are knowingly disobeying our Lord? He's calling us to repent and he's ready to pour grace. Where sin abound, grace did much more abound. Secondly, a little bit of error goes a long way to mess up the whole church. Does anyone bake bread anymore? I know, you, you can only get half credit for those bread baking machines. Does anyone work from scratch to take all those ingredients, put them together? What's amazing is the disproportionate impact that a little bit of yeast has on a lump of dough. Just a little bit will leaven the whole loaf. Paul uses this proverb, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to talk about sin. Just the tolerance of a little bit of sin will corrupt the whole loaf. And here he says, just the tolerance of a little bit of deviance away from the clarity of the gospel will ruin the whole loaf. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf. False teaching and sin come to ruin. Paul goes out of his way to say that clarity really matters. Even taking on board a little bit of what is not true will take us a long way to where we don't want to go. Finally, the cross is a scandal. Did you see that in verse 11? The cross. This is Calvary Baptist Church. The cross of Christ. It's a scandal and an obstacle on several fronts. That's what he says in verse 11. The offense of the cross has been removed if I add some human activity like circumcision to the good news message about Jesus. The cross is a scandal. Paul uses the term obstacle. Paul affirms that the cross is offensive. You know what? The cross says to anyone that looks at the cross, you have a problem. You, we are the problem. But God acted in Christ to provide the solution. But you can't appreciate the cross until you appreciate what it says. It says to us, we have issues we are sinful. God had to act. And so to embrace the cross is to humbly recognize what is true about us in being sinners estranged from a God who is holy. God resolved the issues in Christ. 
The cross says we can't save ourselves, but God did in Christ. It's scandalous to a proud man who wants credit, an autonomous man who wants to do it on his own, who feigns like he needs no help. Phil Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, discusses the scandal of the cross. And the real test case is the passage that Nora read this morning because some find obnoxious the repentance granted and the promise that the thief on the cross would be in paradise. What? Are you kidding me? You tell me that's fair, Eric? The guy sends up a storm for all his life, and at the 11th hour before he dies, he gets his heart right with God. That doesn't seem to be equitable. That doesn't seem to be right. In terms of all that life of rebellion against God, and at the last minute, he recognizes that rebellion, throws himself on the mercy of God. How is that fair, and how is that right? Grace is not fair because we get what we don't deserve. Who's determining what is right? All of us don't have the right stuff. But God offers Jesus. And by his grace, we can be brought in uh, to him. What do you make of the thief on the cross? You know what he was told? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. Eric, that's not fair. That's not right. Grace is a scandal. It's what we get that we don't deserve. It's unjust. And it's as glorious and wonderful as it is unjust. The cross's power is its scandal. We get. But we don't deserve because he got Christ what he didn't deserve. And now... We can be free, though undeserving. Now we can have hope, though we bring nothing to the table. Now we can embrace the scandal of the cross, and rather than finding it obnoxious, we find it the greatest word we've ever heard about anything. God dared to interpose himself and stand between us and hell and take our hell so we could have his life and revel in his grace. Let's pray. Father, in this moment of response, I pray that your spirit would be at work in the auditorium and online. You know each heart. Earlier, we prayed that we would have a responsive heart. Point out where we are sinning. That is taking the sheen off of our integrity as a follower of Jesus. We run well when we obey. pray for anyone who's here this morning who is relying upon themselves and their self-righteousness 
at any level to be accepted by you, I pray that they would drop that reliance and throw themselves on you and come to rely in Christ alone and his word. Father, have you brought them here to understand the gospel this morning and give themselves to you? Open their heart right now. Work in their lives. Listen to their prayer right now.